One fun example of this is actually the story of corn. So Q-U-O-R-N, one of the largest alternative protein companies in the world. So the, the microprotein that is used in the company's products. Essentially, in like, I believe it was the 70s, they were like, great, let's go and find some fungal strain that we might be able to use as a food source. And they went out and did one of these kind of screening approaches to go and test in different environments. Can we find a cool fungus that might be able to grow and might have, you know, really great nutrition and grow relatively efficiently and high protein content and all the rest of it? And the final strain, the Fusarium strain that was ultimately used and then was kind of selected and improved upon, I think it was found at the bottom of the garden in a shed of one of the researchers <laughs> who, no who went out and did this. And that was like almost half a century ago. And that is the strain that corn uses. Who's to say there aren't That's many others and many better ones out there that we just haven't discovered yet in, in biology? Hi, listeners. This is Luis Rodriguez, one of the hosts of the 80,000 Hours podcast. I was extremely excited to get to speak to Saren Kell about making proteins without factory farming. I've been eagerly awaiting the day alternative proteins would be as tasty, cheap, and convenient as traditional meat, dairy, and egg products. In this episode, Saren and I talk about why fermentation, so using the same process as we use for beer and yogurt, but to make protein substitutes and their ingredients, is a surprisingly promising technology for creating delicious alternative proteins. We also talked about the main scientific challenges that need to be solved to make fermentation even more useful. Saren's background is in biochem, so we get into some of the nitty gritty details of the science here. We also talked about the progress that's been made on the cultivated meat front and what it will take to make cultivated meat affordable. And finally, we talked about how people can use their careers to contribute to replacing factory farming with alternative proteins. Without further ado, I bring you Saren Kell. Today, I'm speaking with Saren Kell. Saren is Senior Science and Technology Manager at the Good Food Institute Europe, where she works with scientists to develop, fund, and promote research on alternative proteins. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Saren. Thank you for having me. So we've done interviews with Leah Garces, who's the CEO and President for Mercy for Animals, Louis Bollard, who's the Program Director for Farm Animal Welfare at Open Philanthropy, and several others, including GFI's President and Founder Bruce Friedrich, all basically about how to end factory farming and why. And for anyone who hasn't listened to any of those episodes on this topic before, I recommend you check one of those out before listening to this one, as we're mostly going to launch right into your work without rehashing arguments against factory farming. But just to give a bit of context, what do you see as the basic case for alternative proteins? Yeah, so essentially, if you look at the current our current global food system, animal agriculture and its associated inputs is a leading driver of so many of the world's most pressing challenges. So if you look at things like animal welfare, climate change, other forms of environmental degradation, food security and public health, so things like antimicrobial resistance and zoonotic diseases or pandemics, intensive animal agriculture is one of the leading drivers, if not the leading driver, for all of these issues. And that's not looking to change anytime soon. Right, right. Yeah, I'm always surprised when I learn more about the statistics um, to learn. I guess it seems like animal agriculture is just this like 
horrible, horrible thing that in like, at like whatever problem you look at, it's like they're making things like much worse and is like a pretty big share of many of the, of many of these problems. So like climate change, it feels like, it feels like less of a secret or like unknown fact now, but I feel like a few years ago I learned about the the kind of share of carbon emissions that come from animal agriculture. And it's just huge. It's like one of the main things. It's not like a little side thing. It's like a key thing, uh, which I found kind of mind blowing. And it seems like that's the case for for loads of issues, including animal welfare, which I care a lot about personally. Yeah, I mean, even on that climate point, so one study found that if we literally eliminated fossil fuels overnight, we still couldn't meet our Paris Agreement targets unless we addressed animal agriculture globally. And this is really like the untapped source of emissions, which, as you kind of reference, gets far less attention. And, which is yeah. wild. Like the whole narrative, I guess I don't I don't feel like I personally have it anymore, but I do feel like there's a narrative that many people have that's like, I should stop driving cars, I should stop flying on planes, and that's how I can reduce my own personal contributions to uh, carbon emissions. But a huge, huge part of your personal emissions will be eating meat. Yeah, some kinds of meat more than others, but it just feels like I still want that narrative to be more well-known. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So yeah, I guess we agree that animal agriculture causes lots of harm. So why work on alternative proteins as opposed to other interventions? For example, things that might make animal agriculture less of a contributor to climate emissions or that might improve welfare conditions for animals in factory farms. Yeah, so our thinking behind this essentially is that we we haven't been very successful historically in addressing this problem through basically telling people what to eat or asking people to reduce their meat consumption. And if we look at what actually drives consumer decision-making around what they choose to buy and eat, it is for the vast majority of people, taste, price and accessibility. It just isn't concerns around health or climate change like those things are accessory factors which might nudge people if taste price and convenience are already being met but most people are not compromising on those first three and unfortunately it just is the case that alternatives to meat right now for the vast majority of people are not quite there yet on those three metrics so yeah i think with that being true we need to provide something which people actually want to eat but is far more sustainable and far more humane. And that really is the kind of driving theory behind alternative proteins. I think alternative proteins as an intervention into reducing the harms associated with animal agriculture, it's not a silver bullet. I think there are complementary approaches. I won't speak to kind of various interventions specifically targeting things like animal welfare or specifically targeting the usage of antibiotics. I think alternative proteins has an advantage where you're just essentially trying to displace the kind of problem that the cause of all of these issues. And therefore, it seems a lot more scalable than other interventions. But that's not to say that I think it's one or the other. Yeah, you, you've pointed at this fact that I am that I am super curious about, which is alternative proteins aren't there on on taste, price and convenience. And I guess I think it was something like a decade, maybe a little less time ago that I, yeah, I learned how awful factory farming was. Um, I realized that animal agriculture had had huge negative impacts on the environment. 
and started hearing about really exciting developments in in the science of alternative proteins. Oh, and I guess we should flag alternative proteins, I guess, is just kind of a broad bucket that captures not just alternatives to meat, but also eggs and dairy. So I started hearing about these and was very excited about them and, and even started hearing about cultivated meat or clean meat, which is this approach to creating meat from cells without using animals. And that blew my mind. And it all just felt extremely exciting. And now I guess it feels like lots of time has passed. And this isn't meant to be a criticism of the industry at all, because I think the industry is full of brilliant and well-intentioned people. But I just feel kind of surprised and and yeah and curious I think is the word about why we're not there yet like what what is the challenge I would probably say two things in response to that so the first I think would be to actually just slightly push back on the idea that that the sector's kind of moved slowly than it, than it might otherwise have done or that we might have hoped it would do if we actually look at how much technological progress and how much these products have improved over the course of a decade. It is quite phenomenal, especially when you kind of make that relative to how much investment and resource has actually gone into the space. So to ground that in just one data point around cultivated meat, for example, um, Professor Mark Post from Maastricht University, he unveiled the world's first cultivated meat burger in 2013 burger cost $330,000 to produce. And a decade later, cultivated meat has now been approved for commercial sale in the US. So that was earlier this week and will now very soon be sold to consumers and restaurants. So yeah, fair enough. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, I think it. there has been, if you look at the amount of investment and how that's cashed out in terms of genuine product development, I think that there has actually been a fair chunk of growth given it's science and technology, and science and technology takes time, and a decade actually isn't so long in in relative terms. But I don't want to kind of present it as if, oh no, this is great, This is everything's going as fast as it should be. I think that's absolutely not the case. The scale of the challenge and what needs to happen in order to be able to genuinely scale this sector and provide a meaningful alternative to animal agriculture It is still going far too slowly in those terms. And the success of this sector really actually just isn't inevitable. We need scientists, we need resources, we need businesses moving into the space, we need governments and policymakers to be supporting this space and providing a fair and transparent path to market and an enabling environment for the sector. And none of these things are guaranteed. Alternative proteins needs to be treated as a sector in the same way as other sectors like solar panels or electric vehicles or wind farms have been treated. Um, And there has been some improvements over the last few years on that front, but nowhere near as as much as it needs to be when you actually look at the scale of what needs to happen. Okay, so it, so the case is on on a fraction of the resources. There's an industry trying to get alternative proteins going, but it is just being sounds like quite underfunded relative to the the like environmental stakes. So we'll come back to all the progress we've made on cultivated meat. I do feel really excited to hear more about that. But before we do, I wanted to pick up on something else you said, which is just this, you've pushed back on the idea that we haven't made much progress. Do you have a sense of what the what the hardest things about this are? Like, is it that it turns out taste is just like, a way harder science problem than we realized. Yeah, so I think, so if we kind of break down this this taste price convenience, if, if we see this as these are the things that matter for consumer uptake, 
And then we actually look into the constituent parts of that, like what things need to happen such that sustainable proteins or alternative proteins can compete on those grounds. Taste is a big one. Taste is really, really hard. There's a bunch of reasons why. I'd love to like dive into like the technical side of, of what those are, but it is just really hard to take ingredients from the plant kingdom or the fungal kingdom and create products which taste really kind of fully recapitulating the experience of eating animal protein. It's not impossible. And the progress that has been made is pretty amazing. But there is just a, there's a lot of underlying science there around understanding, you know, animal sciences and meat sciences to actually understand what is the thing that we're trying to replicate here. And then all of the crop sciences and, and the other underlying disciplines that are relevant for trying to engineer that from other ingredients. Taste, taste is a big one there. Price, Prices are, there are a few things that go into price. Um, GFI works a lot with the commercial sector to try and bring other companies into the space, for example, such that they're kind of leveraging their resources to do things like scale up the production of alternative proteins so price can come down. But this is a new sector. New sectors involve a lot of R&D. R&D is really expensive and that can influence how, how, how quickly things like prices can actually come down. And then the accessibility point, I mean... There's a lot of things that go into this, but regulation is a really big one. Are you actually allowed to sell this? Applying for regulatory approval of a product is not quick. I kind of said that Cultivated Meat, we had our proof of concept in 2013 and we've just had regulatory approval in the US a decade later. And I presented that as this really quick thing. That is a really quick thing. It maybe doesn't sound like a quick thing, but for for regulatory approval of new food products, that is... um, really really exciting and and worth celebrating i guess i am i am pretty interested in what you said a second ago about taste being a hard scientific challenge and since you your focus is uh on the science stuff i would actually love to know some of why maybe it's just because i'm so far from the problem but i have this like it's probably just kind of magical thinking, but I'm like, we like have a rough sense of what's in like animal proteins and we like have a rough sense of what like tastes like certain other things. Why can't we just use uh, ingredients that like are, are roughly similar molecules or the same molecules that come from different sources uh, and combine them in a way that, that makes that makes the um, plant based thing taste like I want it to taste? Yeah, I mean, I think that is the basic theory. Like what you're saying is exactly right. And that's kind of, you know, that is the the thinking which is kind of has underlined a lot of the developments that have been happening in the plant-based sector. Maybe I'll pick one example to kind of dive into. So think think about fat. Fat is, you know, this is a simplification, but it's not actually that much of a simplification to say that fat is a lot of the reason why meat tastes good. And fat is quite complicated in terms of how it is layered throughout animal tissue, how it is encapsulated, what that means for how it behaves when it's cooked and how it feels when you put it in your mouth and bite into meat. It's just a really big part of the experience of eating meat and why people find meat tasty. And it's really hard to find direct kind of functional equivalents of animal fat in the plant kingdom. So if you look at all of the plant-based products that we see in supermarkets now, they are often using things like palm oil or coconut oil. Those are ingredients which exist at reasonable scale globally. There are reasonably well-established supply chains, so that's what people are using for plant-based meat. But it just doesn't at all really 
behave in a way which is similar to animal meat. When you cook it, because it's not encapsulated, it just kind of bursts and the burgers are kind of like greasy. It doesn't hold the fat within it and kind of explode in your mouth when you put it in your mouth. Uh, and sorry, real quick, what what exactly does encapsulated mean? If you can imagine it effectively encased in bubbles and those bubbles don't burst when it cooks, but they might burst when you, you put it in your mouth, let's say. Um, yeah. Okay, but plant-based fats tend not to be surrounded by bubbles. And so they they do burst when cooked? Yeah, or or, or they can kind of leak out during the cooking process. Yeah, it, exactly. Um, it's why like a lot of plant-based meat can look a little bit greasy in a way that animal meat doesn't. Right. Okay. So, so I guess plant-based and animal-based fats are different and they like behave kind of differently when cooking and in your mouth. And like, I guess the science is just, it's just really hard to make plant-based based fats behave the same way um and i and maybe it's just like i was overly optimistic that we could just make plants do all the things that animal products do is it just random that there are no plants that make fats that like act the way animal fats do so coconut fat is is on the closer end because it it is less unsaturated and so it does it, it does behave slightly more solid at room temperature but yeah, I mean, this is just like plants and animals are very, very different and have different biology. Yeah, I think it's probably worth diving into like hybrid products later on. I think there are genuine solutions to this. But like to to go back to what you said about, you know, were you being too optimistic? Like, I, I don't think these are things that can't be solved. I think it just requires researchers and resources to solve it. And there hasn't been as much as there needs to be in order to solve it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So are there basically just a bunch of problems like this? Like there's fat, there's, um, I don't know what other structural components there are to these kinds of products. And we just have to like, go at them one at a time and figure out how to make plants do the things that uh, animal products do. Yeah, exactly. Um, If you think about texture, animal proteins tend to be fibrilla, which means that they're arranged in long sheets, whereas Plant-based proteins tend to be globular. Again, there's a challenge there. How can you essentially work with and manipulate plant proteins such that they behave like fibrillar proteins? And there are a few different technologies which have been borrowed from other parts of the food industry to do that. To give an example, a technology called extrusion. I think that was originally developed to make things like Cocoa Pops, um, but it turns out (laughs) that it works relatively well to texturize plant protein. So that's where you start with your kind of concentrated, let's say, soy protein and turn that into something which looks like, let's say, a Beyond Burger. You need to kind of texturize it such that you have that kind of like meaty, chewy structure in that product. And that's just a total black box. Like we don't really understand like what's going on as part of that process. The industry has been really creative and reappropriated and kind of tweaked around with the parameters with that. And that is the major texturization method used for most products on the market. But it wasn't developed for this. It wasn't optimized for this. And it would be great to have more research looking into alternative texturization technologies or ways to breed crops which have proteins which are just functionally better suited for plant-based meat applications. Yeah, maybe I'm just underestimating the extent to which a lot of these, uh, a lot of the scientific questions here are more mysterious and black boxy than I would have guessed. Like, I think I would have thought that chemistry had solved more things like, how can we encapsulate some kinds of fats when they're not encapsulated to begin with? Yeah. And another thing I would just add on that point, it's, it's in addition to kind of 
being able to do a thing with a proof of concept. Alternative proteins as an application has quite unique drivers. Um, It's food. It's a very high volume, relatively speaking, low cost product. Um, So a lot of the solutions which might work just will never work for alternative protein applications. And because you're producing such high volumes of this, it's displacing food, you need to be able to have solutions which there can be well-established global supply chains to actually produce that at scale. So those are other considerations which can kind of make this difficult as well. Yeah, yeah. there's this unfair thing where animal agriculture was slowly scaled up over decades as population grew and alternative proteins have the have the challenge of like meeting global demand from basically nothing. And so maybe it's the case that we're actually like very close to making alternative proteins that taste pretty similar, but figuring out ways to make them for billions of people is a whole another challenge that the animal agricultural industry didn't have to do at the same at the same pace. Yeah, exactly. But that does provide an opportunity, right? Like I think we've kind of hit a lot of essentially diminishing returns from how efficient animal agriculture can be. And there's this in in the meat industry, they refer to it as the carcass balancing problem where you're producing whole animals, only some fraction of that animal's biomass is ultimately high value and something which people want to eat directly. How do you bring value from the rest of that animal? And, you know, you're right. I mean, there have been literally thousands of years of, of, of breeding and living with animals to optimize these kind of problems. But because we're just so early on with alternative proteins and there's so much white space, it's actually just really exciting to know that we can keep on innovating and being far more efficient than this existing technology, which fundamentally is just quite inefficient because you're feeding animals a bunch of food to then extract a small fraction of their biomass to then eat that. Animal agriculture takes up 83% of farmland, but produces just 18% of food calories. So the current system just is so wasteful. And the limiting factor is that you're just growing a bunch of food to then feed a third of the world's crops directly to animals where the vast majority of those calories going in are lost to animals existing. We often talk about chickens as being the most efficient animal we have in intensive animal agriculture for converting calories in to calories out. And even with chickens, it's a nine to one conversion process. So it's just so much more efficient to just consume plants directly. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess my impression is that you'll lose some of that energy or some of those calories while you make alternative proteins, because you're still doing some stuff like extrusion and other things I don't understand to make them palatable. But it sounds like it's probably much less than the amount of loss you get from just like uh, making a chicken live, producing all the feathers and the brain and other things and heat uh, that a chicken does to survive, but that we don't end up getting any any value from. Uh, yeah, that, that's right. Do you think that cheap and widely available alternative proteins are going to be enough to end or at least massively reduce the impact of animal agriculture? For example, to like 5% of current per capita animal meat consumption? Um, or do you think other conditions are needed? Yeah, so I guess I... I feel very optimistic. When you ask consumers kind of, are you reducing your meat consumption or would you like to reduce their meat consumption? You get a high proportion of people who say, yes, I would, or I would like to, um, 
essentially if I'm not having to compromise on taste, price and convenience. I think those three are definitely necessary in order to reduce consumption of animal products. I don't want to commit to saying it's sufficient. I think other things will potentially matter. I think alternative proteins have to be something that people are familiar with. I think it needs to be integrated into specific cultural contexts and specific people's cuisines. I think other things do matter. I think it's it's important that the narrative around alternative proteins, you know, politically and in the public is a positive and fair one. But yeah, I think it's certainly necessary in order to to see that transition. Okay, I want to talk about some of the specific alternative proteins GFI is working to promote. So I think there are three kinds of alternative proteins. There's cultivated, fermentation, and plant-based. So I think we probably all have a basic sense of what plant-based proteins are, but can you give me a refresher on the other two? Uh, I guess starting with cultivated meat. Yeah, so cultivated meat is essentially real animal meat. You're producing beef, pork, chicken, and seafood, but you're producing it directly from animal cells rather than growing entire animals and then extracting tissue from those animals. So you're growing animal cells, you're providing them with the same things that they would otherwise receive within an animal. So the same kind of uh, nutrients and vitamins, things like that, and then harvesting those cells to produce particular products. Okay. And then what is fermentation? I feel like my main association with fermentation is alcohol and yogurt. Um, Is that the chemical process we're talking about here? So... That is a case of traditional fermentation, which is one of the three categories that we talk about when we talk about fermentation in the context of alternative proteins. So there's traditional fermentation, which is exactly as you described. You're taking some kind of ingredient and using microorganisms to process that ingredient and change it in some way. But there are also two other categories, which are precision fermentation and biomass fermentation. Okay, cool. Yeah, maybe we'll come back to those in a little bit. But just to make sure I understand, I don't know exactly what's happening with yogurt, for example. So microorganisms, specifically bacteria, are eating the sugar in the milk and then producing other ingredients or chemicals, which then transform that milk into yogurt. So specifically, they're releasing acids, which trigger this transformation into yogurt. So that is basically what traditional fermentation is. Microorganisms are taking ingredients from a starting mixture of food and then consuming some part of it, producing various other chemicals, and through that process is transforming that product into something slightly different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that that makes sense to me. And so is it the case that whenever you're doing fermentation like this, in the case of alternative proteins, you are doing a similar thing. You're taking an input ingredient and then getting out a product. Or is it also the case that you're sometimes just making ingredients for products? It it can be both. So fermentation is essentially just using microorganisms in weird and wonderful ways to transform inputs into a particular output of interest. So that output could be a very specific ingredient. It could be a vitamin or it could be a particular protein. Or in the case of biomass fermentation, you're actually eating the microorganism itself. So if you think about corn, so Q-U-O-R-N, one of the largest alternative protein companies in the world, you're not eating a plant, you're actually eating a fungal mycelium. So this product, microprotein, you're eating the actual microorganism and that is the, the, the meat itself. That's the product. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So those are those are the three things. And if you had to guess, do you have a take on which will be kind of a bigger share of the market in, say, 2050, cultivated, plant-based or fermentation? Yeah. So it's, I think, firstly, it's probably worth grounding in what the size of the market could look like. So some research has shown that with government investment, plant-based and cultivated meat could be about 22% of the market by 2035. If you look at how you would break that market up. I think it's actually quite tricky to distinguish it or it's almost the wrong way of looking at it. So one reason why that's true is that often these technologies are producing particular ingredients which you're then using in a different technology. So hybrid products is basically going to be quite likely a real thing. So it's kind of hard to delineate between the three pillars because they're actually just massively enabling of one another. Got it. So you won't have like veggie burgers and corn chicken nuggets, which are fermentation and cultivated meat in a way that doesn't rely on any of the other two. You'll have all of these three kind of streams of of protein creation, I guess, mixing and matching to create products that end up going to market and being yeah, more delicious and more cheap. Exactly. So that's one reason is this, this, this question of hybrid products. And there are some really great examples that are already being explored with that, by the way. So, for example, using cultivated fat in a low volume in a plant-based burger to make that plant-based burger just taste a lot more like an animal burger. So that that's one reason. And then I think another reason why it's somewhat hard to predict is that it's quite likely that these different production pillars or these different verticals will just appeal to different consumers in different ways. Oh, of course. Right. Some people are going to be like, ew, cultivated meat sounds weird, but like corn chicken nuggets are totally fine. And then other people are going to be like, I want to be eating chicken cells. <laughs> and so they'll they'll be really into cultivated meat. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that's quite likely going to be the case. Okay, then I guess maybe framing the question slightly differently. I'm curious if if like one of these particular approaches is particularly exciting to you. So I guess my my story or my the way that I fell into alternative proteins was very much via hearing about cultivated meat and exploring that sector. In reality, and since I've joined GFI and learned and understood a lot more about the other two pillars, I genuinely am equally excited about the potential of of all three and and what they can do to support one another as well. You know, for example, I think fermentation is a really, really exciting enabling technology for alternative proteins in general, and then as its own, as a way of producing alternative proteins in its own right as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that is not what I expected you to say. I guess I have just heard loads about cultivated meat. And it's this kind of it's just this kind of sexy sci fi thing that makes me feel like we're about to be living in the future. And I know next to nothing about fermentation, um, which which I guess just makes me excited to learn about it. So actually, let's let's dive in and talk a bunch more about fermentation. To start, I guess you've you've kind of said that there's traditional fermentation, and my impression is that's been around for a very, very long time. How has fermentation evolved over time? And I guess, can you say more about the role it's it's going to play in accelerating the rise of alternative proteins? Yeah, sure. So fermentation has been an incredibly useful method of processing and preserving food for literally thousands of years. So beer, bread tempeh, sauerkraut, kimchi, etc. Those all involve traditional fermentation. 
And now we are seeing scientists and companies applying both traditional fermentation to alternative proteins specifically, but also other ways of using microorganisms which fall under this bucket of fermentation, so biomass and precision fermentation. So that can be to produce very, very specific functional ingredients, things like fats or flavor molecules or vitamins, but also to produce actual kind of meaty protein itself that has the same taste and texture of animal products. Are there good examples of traditional fermentation being used for alternative proteins in particular? Yeah, so one way in which it's helpful is that it can essentially improve the taste of plant-based ingredients. So, Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, to, to give a specific example of this, so if you're using legumes, so for example, peas as your plant-based ingredient, it can often have this kind of beany taste, this kind of strange off taste associated with it. And that's one way in which fermentation can come in handy. So if you ferment, let's say, fava beans, that can reduce that beany taste. And that's actually what one food manufacturer, Foodic, have done. They've launched this fermented fava bean ingredient where they've used fermentation. There's another example. So Mycotechnology is a company that is performing traditional fermentation of things like pea or rice or chickpea. And again, because they fermented it with a particular fungus, that's now really improved the taste profile and added tastes like meatiness and savouriness and certain umami flavours to the product. That's amazing. I I just have this feeling of like fermentation is magic. <laughs> it's like you have some random starting ingredient like beans and then you like put it through a yeast and then the yeast makes it taste meatier and less beany, which is just extremely cool. Okay. How about biomass fermentation? What is going on there? Yeah. So biomass fermentation is, it's a similar concept. You're feeding microorganisms, whatever they need to, to grow, but rather than the main biomass being the plant ingredient, it's the actual microorganism. So you're essentially just leveraging the fact that they can grow incredibly quickly and produce a lot of high quality protein very quickly and actually consuming them directly. So there's some pretty impressive examples of this. There's another biomass fermentation company called Enough Foods. And with a factory that they're currently building in the Netherlands, they're aiming to deliver 50,000 tons per year, which is the equivalent of about a cow's worth of protein every two minutes Oh, Which wow. is very cool. That's incredible. Right. Given the amount of time it takes to make a cow in the world, that does seem incredibly, incredibly efficient. Yeah. Are there any other cool examples of that? Another one that jumps to mind. So there's a company in Finland called Solar Foods where they're essentially using electricity, air and water as the inputs to then produce a load of high quality protein. That's amazing. Wait, so what's the microorganism there? Yeah, so you're you're taking water, using electricity as an input and carbon dioxide as an input to then produce the ingredients, which the bacteria will then consume. Got it. That is super, super cool. Do you know like what the output is? Is it is it a protein that, that then gets used as an ingredient for an alternative protein down the line? I think that at least in the first instance, they were producing this very high protein powder. I'm unsure whether their strategy is to produce it 
to use it as an ingredient and sell it B2B to food manufacturers or whether they would actually develop animal product alternatives using that 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 bacterium at the end. Okay, cool. But it's basically you're putting bacteria in a tank. You are also putting water and carbon dioxide in the tank and then you're electrifying it. And that gives the bacteria the ingredients it needs to produce a bunch of protein powder-like stuff, which which just, again, sounds like magic. That's really, really cool. Let's talk about precision fermentation. What's going on there? Yeah, so precision fermentation is really interesting. It's, again, you're using microorganisms, but you're using them essentially as miniature cell factories, to produce very specific ingredients. And this is not at all unique to alternative proteins. So just to give a couple of examples of this, a while ago, most people got their insulin from, I believe, the pig industry. It was extracted from pigs. That is no longer the case. The vast majority of insulin that, for example, diabetics use is produced via essentially this process. So they've taken a yeast given it the instructions it needs to produce human insulin. And then they are growing in a tank, producing lots of the insulin, and then the insulin is purified out. It is clean. It does not have to come from a pig slaughterhouse. And it's a much more reliable process. It's it's also been a thing in the food industry for a while. So a lot of our vitamins, for example, B12 for supplementation, comes from precision fermentation rather than extracting it from some source or trying to synthesize it chemically. We're just using biology to do it very efficiently and very quickly. Great. Amazing. And I guess it sounds like the key difference is rather than, I guess, eating the organism in its entirety or doing this traditional thing, which gives you a kind of soup at the end, you are giving the microorganism a specific ingredient, and then it's it's like producing a specific ingredient at the output. And that's the thing that I guess makes it precise. Are there examples in the alternative protein space that are that are particularly cool? There have been a few really exciting examples of this. So first of all, Impossible Foods essentially pioneered precision fermentation produced heme, So a bit of background context, heme is an ingredient which is naturally present in animal tissue. It's in your blood and my blood. And they've essentially taken the instructions for producing heme and are expressing it through precision fermentation and then using that as an ingredient in a plant-based burger. So it's the reason that the Impossible Burger kind of bleeds and has this kind of bloody look and is supposed to be responsible for that kind of meaty taste that you have for the Impossible Burger. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, so in this case, they've got something like a yeast and they give it something probably with iron in it, and that yeast is able to convert it to heme, which it sounds like historically has has only been available through animal tissue, and now we just get it without animals. So uh, some other exciting examples of precision fermentation is because you have total freedom to decide which proteins or which fats or which particular ingredients you want to make you can also just make real animal proteins. So to to give an example of this, we're seeing some companies taking yeast and giving them the instructions to make things like whey or casein, which are the major proteins in cow's milk, and then using that to produce genuinely real animal-free dairy. So 
ice cream or yogurt or cheeses, things like that. Right. Oh, cool. So you can still make that, but without a cow, by just producing the ingredients and combining them. Yes. Awesome. Exactly. I love that. I'm I'm into fermentation. I'm sold. This is good. <laughs> but yeah, I'm curious kind of overall... What is it about fermentation that's that's making you so excited about it or that made you more excited once you learn more about it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just really, really cool for a bunch of reasons. It's it's familiar to the food industry. It's incredibly efficient. So as part of that, you have really, really quick R&D cycles compared with animals or plants because microorganisms can grow much quicker. Um, it already operates at massive scale in food or biopharma. It's not constrained by land in the same way, which means that you can produce food in areas which historically have had very little food production. There's a lot of opportunity from like a circular economy perspective. Microorganisms can basically be quite flexible about what food they eat. And so there's a lot of potential to basically leverage waste byproducts on non-conventional foods. Okay, so the circular aspect of that is like you can take waste from one part of the food industry and give it as an input to another part of the industry because the organisms involved in fermentation will just be like, yeah, I'll eat that. I'll turn that into something more useful for you. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I guess the last thing is just a wider point. Like this is massively, massively untapped. We don't know a huge amount. I guess one way of looking at it is you often hear this quote, like, we know less about the bottom of our ocean than we know about the surface of the moon, let's say. I have no idea how true that is, but that's the kind of thing that you'll sometimes hear. And I think with fungi, there is a similar kind of sentiment there. It's just really, really unexplored. And there's just a huge amount of white space within biology, which means that I think there's just a huge amount of potential and a lot of great things that we might learn the more that we understand about fungi in the future. Okay, cool. So it's it's efficient. It's it's kind of untapped. There's like a lot of potential because we don't know all of the uses of some of these microorganisms. And yeah, I guess it's familiar to the food industry. So then how do these products compare with respect to their environmental impacts? Yeah. So if you just, you know, do a standard life cycle assessment of fermentation as a process, you do have massive savings in terms of land use and, and greenhouse gas emissions and water usage and, and other metrics that are important for environmental impact. So just to give like a couple examples of this, corn's um, fermentation made protein, that has a carbon footprint 70% lower than chicken. And similarly, wow. Yeah. And I should say as well, like chickens are hard to benchmark because chickens are incredibly efficient, relatively speaking, from an environmental perspective compared with beef, say. Yeah, 70% does sound huge. Are there are there other examples where fermentation has been leveraged to address environmental challenges? Yeah, so I mean, if you do a like-for-like like comparison, comparing with beef, your, your savings are obviously going to be a lot better than compared with chicken. So if you produce whey protein via precision fermentation, that causes 97% fewer greenhouse gas emissions than if you're taking it from a cow directly. Um, so that's another life cycle assessment that's been done of a particular product. Yeah, well, that's amazing. But I think it is worth like talking about the fact that not only is fermentation just less resource intensive overall, but back to that point about being able to upcycle waste side streams from other industries, there is this big opportunity for just like broader sustainability benefits there. So 
I can just give a couple examples of what that could look like in practice. Yeah, great. So for example, there's a German fermentation startup called Mush Labs that are collaborating with a brewery to use essentially spent grain from the beer production process as the food that they then feed to their mycoprotein. Super cool. Yeah, it's it's really cool. We've actually funded a project through our research grant program where researchers are taking corn husks, which again is another waste waste agricultural byproduct. Must be a huge byproduct. Yeah, and then again, using that as a potential feedstock or food for their microorganisms to consume and just getting high quality protein at the end of that process. And there's a bunch more research that can be done. Oyster mushrooms, one paper suggested recently, could grow on just hydrated wood pulp, which is an incredibly abundant side stream from the paper industry. So yeah, there's just a lot of opportunities there. It feels very like we're living in the future where like we've figured out how to use all of our waste to make other good things. And we've just like solved, solved a bunch of sustainability stuff. Okay, so one of the challenges with fermentation has to do with what's called target selection. Uh, can you explain what that is? So essentially target selection is, it's, it's really most relevant in the context of precision fermentation, where you're trying to make a really specific protein or fat or ingredient of some kind. And that is essentially the target. So it's just mm. choosing what it is that you want to be making through precision fermentation. Right. Okay. So it's like the target outcome thing is like whey or whatever. And I guess you want to figure out which of those things are important to make. Yeah. What's the key question there that needs to be answered? Is is the thing that's hard about it just like there are a billion options and it's like not totally clear which ones we can make really efficiently using fermentation? Yeah. I mean, basically, yeah. I mean, it's part of the challenge is you have this kind of you're staring at this blank canvas. And as you say, there's a near infinite number of different compounds or ingredients that might be helpful to be making to use as ingredients in alternative proteins. And we just don't know what they are. So talking before about like animal sciences and meat sciences, like what is it that makes meat or egg or dairy taste or behave in a certain way when you're cooking and eating it. So there's that element, just actually understanding what are the useful things that might be helpful to include in a product. And then there are some other factors as well, like can you already get that thing easily from another place? Does it happen to exist um, in a plant, for example? Or is it really hard to manufacture or there's, is it just not very abundant in nature? In which case, again, it might be something that you would want to produce through precision fermentation. And it's hard because what you choose will ultimately impact what the process looks like. And with all kind of food production, but, you know, especially so in precision fermentation, what really matters is the economics of production, because really to compete with animal based proteins, you need to be able to increase the efficiency of actually producing that particular ingredient so that you can do it in a sustainable and productive way at scale. Yeah, yeah. So what is the process of trying to work out which targets to choose look like? Is it, uh, I don't know, scientists going through all of the possible things you need for these various products and being like, which one do we have clever ideas for, for making? Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah computational biology can be really supportive of this. So you can use like multi-omics approaches. You can do kind of high throughput screening in silico to look at 
here are all the proteins that are produced in this type of cell, let's say a muscle cell, in this type of animal. Hmm, some of those might be useful for taste and flavour. But yeah, basically the goal is to do it in a high throughput way. And that is just quite hard to do often. Right. Okay. So it's not like looking at ingredients on packages and being like, huh, maybe we could, maybe we could make this more efficiently. It's like computational biology, looking at probably tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of proteins produced and being like, how can we use that or like a similar thing? Which ones are relevant to, to this food science? Yeah, exactly. That's that's one major element of it. And kind of understanding the the metabolic pathways involved in producing that thing. And again, there's a computational side to that. What's likely to be efficient? What's going to be really complicated for your yeast to make? Does it involve a bunch of different steps? And it's just going to never be economic to be doing that? Or are there some kind of easy wins that are relatively easy to make and might have a lot of functional value? Yeah. What does it look like to make those? What a cool puzzle. Yeah, it's very, very cool. Um, As with a lot of things, I think like better computational approaches to just speeding up a lot of these things can be super valuable. Huh. I, yeah, I guess I, we're going to talk about the skill sets relevant to these careers later, but it hadn't occurred to me that, that computational versions of this, of these sciences are super important, but I guess that makes sense. There are yeah, as you said, near infinite ingredients. And uh, you probably aren't going to find really brilliant uh, ways of synthesizing them by picking picking through them one by one. Yeah. What, are, there, are there other hard things about target selection? Or like, I don't know, other clever approaches people are taking to work on it? I guess one other thing I would add is that you you don't have to be constrained by what already exists in nature. You can be actually designing new proteins or new small molecules that might have some kind of functional value. And again, it would take a long time to be actually testing those with real physical stuff. So can you be like testing their functionality it through some kind of computational model? That's, you know, potentially really exciting. But again, there's a lot of work that would go into doing that and not that many people actually doing that for alternative protein applications. Okay, so it's something like you can be creative and you can know that like yeast tend to make this kind of thing uh, and you can be like, I actually want it to make a slightly different kind of thing. And then is that is that something you do through genetic modification? Yeah, it could be through direct modification of the gene itself in your production host or it could be in a slightly more passive way. So, so kind of essentially leveraging evolution. So just screening a bunch of different yeast and seeing if they're naturally producing different versions of different targets and then selecting for the ones of interest. Yeah, that that's kind of, it's what can be referred to as directed evolution, essentially just speeding okay. it up a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. So another challenge is trying to figure out which microbial strains uh, to use for fermentation, which I think basically is like, do you use a particular kind of yeast? Do you use a bacteria? Do you use some specific cell line? Can you explain what the challenge is there? Yeah, so it is exactly as you said. It's it's which organism are you using as your production host in your process? I mean, I guess one way of looking at it is precision fermentation isn't really a new technique. In other industries, it might go by different names like recombinant protein production or synthetic biology. 
But it, it's an established technology and there are a bunch of what are called workhorse strains. So go-to production hosts that are used. And there's reasons why people would start to converge and using similar strains. So they start to become more familiar. People start to characterize them better. There's fewer regulatory barriers um, because it's just well understood, whereas there are barriers to commercializing new host species. But there basically is no reason why from a scientific perspective, we should be limited to a very small number of strains which are well characterized by other industries. We've slightly hit diminishing returns in terms of how much better we can make those strains. And it would just make a lot more sense to go out there and explore the kind of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, if not more of strains that we may not even have discovered, but still could go out and find out what they're doing and just leverage whatever biodiversity they actually have. And again, now that we have these kind of high throughput screening and characterization tools, it does actually really merit essentially just re-canvassing all of the known microbial species to see what their suitability would look like for this application. Cool. Okay. I'm realizing I like kind of have a sense of what you mean by high throughput. I think you mean something like you can do a thing computationally to do it really quickly and efficiently and get loads of like results about which strains or which targets seem good. Um, is it something like that? Yeah, that's exactly right. So you're 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 predefining the kinds of things that you think might be useful traits about what you're looking for. So whether that's the actual strain, the host organism, or whether that's the target molecule or ingredient that you want to be producing. And then you are screening all of the data we have already. And that might be things like the genomes, um, the metabolisms, the known signaling pathways within what is what is known of, of these existing microbial species out there and seeing what comes back. So yeah, it's basically like comparing and contrasting different traits really quickly using computational data. So it sounds like the challenge here, which I guess is also just like an opportunity, is like there are probably billions of bacteria, fungi, yeast out in the world. And we can just look at all of them and be like, are any of these creating the kinds of things we need to make to make alternative proteins taste better or make an ingredient more cheaply? And so let's just like explore them all and and find the best ones, which is, yeah, it just is, it's just pretty amazing. Yeah, there's a couple of nice examples here, actually. So one kind of fun example of this is actually the story of corn. So the, the mycoprotein that is used in the corn company's products. Love corn. Yeah, I, I find corn really tasty. And essentially in like, I believe it was the 70s, they were like, great, let's go and find some fungal strain that we might be able to use as a food source. And they went out and did one of these kind of screening approaches to go and test in different environments. Can we find a cool fungus that might be able to grow and might have, you know, really great nutrition and grow relatively efficiently and high protein content and all the rest of it? And the final strain, the Fusarium strain that was ultimately used and then was kind of selected and improved upon, I think it was found in like at the bottom of the garden in a shed of one of the researchers <laughs> who, no who went out and did this. And that was like, 
like almost half a century ago, if I'm getting the dates right. And that is the strain that corn uses. Who's to say there aren't That's many others and many better ones out there that we just haven't discovered yet in, in biology. Right. And fungi especially are just amazing and can be very well adapted to quite extreme environments like there are certain microorganisms that live at the bottom of the sea and so can deal with really high temperatures or can consume as their food quite strange sources they could be very flexible which means oh great could we feed this thing methanol or hydrogen or carbon dioxide and it will just turn that into protein because it's you know through through kind of totally independent evolution elsewhere it's evolved to just do some really, really cool chemistry. Wow. Yeah, it's just like the world is the oyster. Wow, cool. I like love the story about the corn fungus being found in the garden shed. I also am like slightly horrified by it. (laughs) I'm like, oh God, like I eat corn chicken nuggets like at least weekly. (laughs) And now I'm just like picturing them as like the, the fungus in someone's like back garden (laughs) dingy shed (laughs) i mean i think the strain that is being used industrially has come a long way since that initial one they have done a lot of work optimizing and improving upon it but yeah it it does speak to we should really go out there and see what's already there and then through all these new technologies can also just massively improve upon once we have identified a strain that we want to start with totally cool Oh, I love that. That's a really good example. Yeah. Are there any other examples? Yeah. Another one jumps to mind. So there's a research institution in Finland called VTT, and they've been doing some really cool examples of this kind of work. And one recent output that came from that was they developed a new strain of trichoderma, so a type of filamentous fungus. And this strain, they were able to make produce essentially ovalbumin, which is one of the proteins that we find in chicken eggs. And this strain is is now producing that, which again, is great. Cool. Are there any other kind of areas of research that seem important to making fermentation? Yeah, I guess even more valuable. Yeah. So we, I think we touched on it earlier, but there's this, you know, huge opportunity with fermentation, which is that you can potentially use as your feedstock or your food for the process, your carbon source, a bunch of different things which might be waste products or might not be competing with food for people or might be kind of upcycling things that we really need to get rid of for some other reason. And that's an opportunity, but there's obviously a lot of research that goes into identifying what that could look like and which strains would make sense and and what are the actual inputs that we think would make sense from like an economic perspective and like what 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 does the existing supply chains look like for these things so that's obviously quite an interdisciplinary question but there's also obviously a huge technical component like let's say back to that kind of wood pulp example let's say it seems like it would be really convenient to find a way to find value with of wood pulp and produce actual kind of high quality human protein from that okay, which strains would do that? What are the conditions? What conditions make sense such that it actually adds up from an economic perspective and it's not still like kind of essentially a bit of a loss? Right. Yeah. And all of that stuff just takes a lot of trial and error and a lot of modeling Mm. as well. I mean, to what extent are companies going out and being like looking for waste products 
and being like, that is this huge untapped resource. Nobody wants it. We can get it for cheap. And if we can find a way to turn it into something valuable for alternative proteins, then we just get this kind of magical product that like, I don't know, makes use of this thing that was that was garbage. Is that to some extent the process? Is it like, okay, what are all the industries that have waste products? Let's figure out which waste products have anything potentially relevant to alternative proteins and then start working on the science for how to make those kind of conversions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's basically right. I think a lot of this work is still quite early. And so most of what I'm seeing is happening in academia. So people doing these kind of mapping exercises and publishing papers saying, here are a bunch of waste side streams or, or, or partnering with companies in joint collaborative research projects to, to try and answer those questions. I mean, another an example of that, which I'm seeing not actually in the fermentation space, but in cultivated meat, is one project that's happening in the UK right now, which is looking at essentially the potential involvement of the UK's agricultural and farming community in cultivated meat production And one part of that research project is essentially just doing this, going and mapping out all of the waste products that are currently produced in British agriculture. I don't know. I mean, uh, these would be silly examples, but let's say like cabbage stems are just left to rot in the field. But, you know, they contain a bunch of protein and carbohydrates, etc. And looking at how those like what the actual nutritional or functional composition of those outputs are and seeing could they be used in cell culture media which is one component of cultivated meat production and the most expensive component of cultivated meat production but yeah that that seems like a really promising project to me like go and find what is already available that's a great example yeah any other research questions that are i don't know important and interesting in the fermentation space This is maybe less a research question, but it is just worth emphasizing as a massive priority, which is the question of infrastructure. So, you know, fermentation takes place in essentially these big steel tanks, and they do exist elsewhere, beer, brewing, pharmaceutical industry, like vaccine production, antibody production, things like that. But much of the infrastructure which exists globally wasn't, well, most of it wasn't developed for fermentation for food applications. And that just means that there's a shortage of what's actually going to be needed in total if fermentation is going to meaningfully displace meat production. And what's there just isn't particularly appropriate for this use case. Like it's too expensive. You know, in the pharmaceutical industry, you'll do one fermentation batch and then you'll just throw it away because the stringency requirements for maintaining sterility are so high and you're producing low volume, super high cost products that the economics mean it just makes better sense to literally just chuck this thing away, which is so wasteful. But for food, that just doesn't work. And so you need like big tanks, which can be cleaned and which are reusable and which can have like a really high throughput of kind of ingredients going in and product coming out and efficient downstream processing pathways for this application, just building it so it actually makes sense. And there's a huge shortage of this. It's really expensive when you have an industry where much of the activity is happening in startups, there just isn't the financing available for companies to be building this themselves. And often they need to be scaling up what they're doing. And so what they need, they wouldn't actually need for such a long time. So it wouldn't make sense for them to buy it or build it. To do it now. Exactly. And that's like where there is a massive role for public investment, like 
public investment to build pilot plants, which can be shared between different companies to come and rent it for a certain portion of their R&D process. So so there are loads of open questions. Uh, it sounds like just cool field to be in right now um, with loads of really interesting, puzzly research. Are there any things that we've nailed or succeeded at lately in this space? I guess the flashiest development has been like using a precision fermentation produced ingredient in an alternative protein product, which is being sold at high scale. So the Impossible Burger, like that's flashy in the fact that it's happening at a very large scale. I think there are lots of like little wins happening in in kind of, you know, in in universities and research institutes all around the world in in different ways. I, I, I think there are a lot of exciting things happening on the question of trying to diversify feedstocks. The default for this technology in other industries is just pure glucose or sugar, which it would be better if one could use feedstocks which wasn't useful for other industries or wasn't expensive or wasn't competing um, as an ingredient in other places. So those cabbage stems, for example, for if example. we could find a waste product or or just something where there wasn't a huge demand for the thing yeah. separately. Yeah. Okay. So we're mostly using sugar. Are there any ideas for other things to use? People are trying lots of different things. So there are people kind of take trying to extract sugars from these wayside streams. There are people who are using like non-organic carbon feedstock. So that's when you're thinking about things like just carbon dioxide. Um, the company Solar Foods in Finland, and I believe it's Air Protein in the US, are essentially using carbon dioxide as the source of carbon to then kind of build the biomass for the fermentation. So again, those are examples of companies who are actually doing it and scaling it up. But yeah, lots of different wins, so much to explore and see what it could look like. And obviously there is a, a regional factor here, like what is actually being produced in this country versus this country and what times of year and and what would the logistics look like for kind of transporting that? Do you need to co-locate your fermentation facility with this entirely separate farm or, or or kind of industrial factory for some entirely different thing. Yeah, every company will have a different journey, but there is just a massive backbone of academic research that needs to be done to see what it could look like technically to be able to do this efficiently. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Cool. All right. Well, I loved that. I didn't know. I mean, again, I knew almost nothing about fermentation and I feel like fermentation is just this magic thing where you like take some random stuff, give them to a bunch of microorganisms that I never think about, and they make incredibly valuable products that I wouldn't wouldn't have guessed or that seem like really hard to make in other ways. I like that summary. <laughs> I really <laughs> nice. like that okay. summary. <laughs> Good. Well, let's talk about cultivated meat next. What's the overall story of, of what's happened with cultivated meat over the last decade? Yeah, so you could say that the kind of explosion of activity kicked off proper in the year 2013. There had been little bits and pieces and projects that had been happening prior to that, some in the context of feeding people in space, some in other contexts. But really, in the year 2013, this was like a kind of defining moment in the field where Professor Mark Post at Maastricht University developed a cultivated meat burger, which was then cooked in London at this big demonstration to show this is a real thing. This is something that can be done and ought to be pursued for reasons of climate, for example. That burger cost $330,000 to produce 
So it was very much saying this is possible, but was clearly pointing to the fact that a lot of research and development would need to happen in order for this to be a viable alternative to consuming animal protein directly. So that was in the year 2013. And then a decade later, we have now recently had cultivated meat passing through regulatory approval in the US, in addition to it already being approved for consumption in Singapore. So that feels like a big, a big moment 10 years later. And not only can we do this thing, but very soon in the US and also in Singapore, people will be actually eating this in real restaurants. Yeah, that is wild and incredible. Have there been any kind of landmarks along the way, breakthroughs in the science or something that like stick out to you as like that was that was a big that was a big win for cultivated meat? I'll speak to like maybe updates about the ecosystem first and then dive into like particular technological breakthroughs because it's probably worth grounding it in these other data points that show how this field has grown. So I guess the first thing is just how many people and who is doing this. Back in 2013 and for the following few years, it was a really tiny number of academic scientists and startups. In 2017, when I first heard about cultivated meat, there were definitely fewer than 20 companies in the whole world who were trying to actually work on this. That's changed. It's become much more sophisticated as an ecosystem as more funding has come in. So there's now about 150 companies worldwide, 30 of those in Europe. And it's not just lots of new startups trying to develop cultivated meat products. There's just a lot more specialization. So more B2B companies, people working on solving very particular aspects of the process. Again, these are just like nice signals that the industry is developing into a more of a mature sector. And then another signal at the kind of ecosystem level is the fact that for the vast majority of time that people have been working on cultivated meat, it's been really dominated by the private sector. So VC-funded R&D happening in a closed environment in, relatively speaking, speaking quite small startups. Um, that is starting to change. We're seeing a lot more open access research. We're seeing a lot more government funding and like actual public support going into research happening in universities where the research is published. That means This means that the entire industry can benefit from it. And it means that there's a lot more transparency into what the technology can and currently does look like. So those are all some really nice positive changes that we've been seeing as the sector has developed over the last few years. And one particular culmination of that in Europe was last year, there was a landmark investment from the Dutch government to a big cultivated meat consortium. So a collection of companies and and researchers, and that was in the value of 60 million euros. So that's the biggest public investment into the space in all history. And that was a really great signal again, that this is like something that government should take seriously as part of meeting their climate agreements, as part of meeting the kind of benefits that can come to them as a country in terms of economic development and things like that. Yeah. So did they did they say much about their reasoning? Was it basically like, this seems important for climate reasons. Also, we want to be part of the growing industry because it's going to be, it may not yet be, but it's going to be economically valuable for us to have a big stake. And they basically decided getting in early is like a sensible and kind of good for the world thing to do. Yeah, that's right. I mean, every country has additional contextual factors that explain why they have or haven't really lent into cultivated meat. So the Netherlands Mm -hmm. just is 
essentially the Silicon Valley of food innovation globally. There's this particular region called Food Valley Netherlands, and that is where all the big food companies have big research and development activities. Huh. I had no idea. Yeah, they export. I don't know off the top of my head exactly, but I, I, they export. You know, they're one of the countries that exports the most food, and for a tiny, tiny country, is quite amazing. Yeah, that's quite shocking. And that, yeah, there are other reasons which would explain it. Obviously, Professor Mark Post, the, the man who essentially demonstrated that this was possible to a large audience, he was a Dutch professor based at a Dutch university. So it's somewhat kind of them kind of maintaining the innovation that really came from Dutch science. Right. Um, but then you have places like Singapore, where food security is just a really major priority. They don't have a huge amount of land. They import a lot of their food. And so there's just massive benefits for them to be able to produce more food in a way that doesn't require huge amounts of agricultural land. Yeah, that makes sense of sense. Yeah. And then on the on the kind of science front, what have some of the big landmarks been? Yeah. So I, I think as part of the fact that just many more people are working on this and in parallel and publishing the work that they're doing, there just have been much more of a diversity of approaches to solving some of the common technical challenges for cultivated meat. And that's just really nice to see. Cool. Maybe it makes sense to talk about some of those challenges then. What are the hard things about cultivated meat at the moment? Yeah. So if you look at what is involved in producing cultivated meat, there are a few basic things which are true for every company or every researcher in a university who's doing this. So the cells that you're working with, which are often derived from what are called cell lines. Hmm. The bioreactors, so those big steel tanks that you're growing the cells in. A third thing is what we call scaffolding. So scaffolding is essentially material that cells attach to to grow on. So you might have it because the kinds of cells you're working with are what are called adherent cells, which means they want to be attached to something and they won't grow if they're not. You know, most of the cells in your body are not just kind of floating around in free solution. They're interacting with each other and there are complicated interactions involved in that. And another benefit of scaffolding is, you know, meat isn't just, again, a collection of cells. There's a complicated 3D structure in terms of the relationships between the cells and the tissue types um, interacting with one another. So scaffolding can help try to solve some of those structural and textural challenges when you're trying to produce like real whole cut products. So things like steaks or chicken breasts. Right, right. The imagery coming to mind is like, if you wanted like a certain area to become a thriving community, you'd like build a bunch of houses and stores and like then it could populate it. But like people don't just like wander around. You like, you need to create little homes for the cells. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, I like that. <laughs> I should say a lot of the technology involved in cultivated meat existed in other industries like regenerative medicine, like growing organs outside of a body for things like organ transplants. So again, like lots of this technology isn't new, but the use case is very different. So for cultivated meat, ideally you might want your scaffolding elements to be edible so that you can incorporate them into the final product. Otherwise you have to harvest all the cells off this before you can process them into food. And I should say the fourth element of developing cultivated meat or the main kind of research area within it is the cell culture media. And this is essentially the liquid that the cells grow in. 
that provides all of the food and nutrients and vitamins and minerals that they would otherwise be receiving in a body and also removing things like waste products, so things like carbon dioxide and other kind of metabolites that build up during that that cell's life cycle. Got it. Okay. So it's like, which cells do you use? How do those cells get organized? How do you like give them the little homes they need to like attach to and thrive? How do you feed them? How do you remove their waste? And maybe there was one that I missed. Well, there is a final one, I guess, which is the the bioreactors themselves. People are using different types of bioreactor technology to develop cultivated meat. And yeah, there's a lot of research that needs to be done there to make sure, you know, what are the ideal sizes? What are the ideal ways to circulate nutrients around and remove waste products? Can you recycle cell culture media so that the overall production cost is less? Things like that. So there's a lot of just like bioreactor technology and bioprocessing that's involved as well. Kind of back to that $330,000 for one burger. Mark Post was growing the cells that became part of that burger at the same scale that I was doing tissue culture in a laboratory setting in these tiny little flasks. Um, So really inefficient. The process he was using was not the same that it would make sense to have a process at a large scale to produce meat for people to eat. Did it take him like years or something to create enough? (laughs) It did take a really long time. I can't remember. At at least months. Um, I'm not sure if years, but yeah, a really long time. And then he was just like layering it on top of each other to try to make a a full piece, a bite. Yes, <laughs> essentially. Wild. And there's also the question of what cell types you're using. Like what are the cells that are in conventional meat? Muscle cells, obviously, fat cells, connective tissue cells. And there is complexity around How do you make sure that they're interacting well with each other? Are the conditions for one cell type identical to the conditions for the other cell type? Mm. Do you want to start with other cell types, which are much happier growing very quickly and just creating a lot of biomass, and then bring in a change in their conditions, which triggers them to then transform into these more specialized relevant cell types for me? So there's just a lot of like complicated biology involved as well and actually understanding how these cells behave and do they behave differently in different species and things like that. An organization called CE Delft conducted a techno-economic assessment for cultivated meat production mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, which brought in data from a bunch of different companies in the sector to essentially model what it would look like to bring cultivated meat production costs down to something which is reasonable, essentially to kind of pinpoint what the major research priorities are and, and what needs to be targeted. And essentially, it came down to the cost of cell culture media. Oh, the media is the limiting factor. Interesting. Really expensive. What exactly is in it? Is it is it like a mix of like sugar? Is it kind of sugar water with like some other nutrients and also, I don't know, a couple of other molecules that like help remove uh, waste or something. Can you boil that down for me? It's basically the food. So if you imagine, you know, Mm -hmm. it's it's not quite this, but if you imagine like Lucozade, like contains a bunch of sugars (laughs) and salts and things that you need for your cells to be able to function. So it's food and then it's other proteins which have important functional roles for directing how cells behave. 
oh, I see. It's like stack yourselves in this way and like become this kind of cell or like make friends with this other kind of cell. Yeah. Or like you need to grow. <laughs> you just keep, keep on <laughs> okay, growing okay. and dividing. And some of those components are extraordinarily expensive. All of the cell culture media, for the most part, that is being produced right now globally is for scientific research in labs or for the pharmaceutical industry. So it's just very pricey to buy formulations which are totally free of any animal components and which function well and which are at all affordable for this particular application. So GFI, um, our scientists in the US, have done various analyses looking at how much the cell culture media needs to cost for it to be mm -hmm. at all reasonable and understanding what are ways in which one could otherwise source those really expensive ingredients in much cheaper ways and at much larger scales. And what's the current gap? What's the difference between how expensive cell media is right now and what it would need to be to be, I guess, a viable cost competitive ingredient? Yeah. So if you're looking at the current animal component free formulations on the market, you would be expecting to pay at least $300 or $400 per litre for that. Whereas for cultivated meat applications, it would need to be around a dollar per litre or less, ideally. So <laughs> oh, wow. costs need to come down a, a lot. There are other ways to reduce the effective cost of cell culture media. So in this techno-economic assessment, there were some other possible research avenues that was suggested could be explored. So could you, for example, use metabolic engineering of the cells such that they just require fewer of these signaling components or they're oversensitive to the signaling components, so you just need less of them? Right. They get like a tiny fraction of the growth hormone and then they, they are just like, we're going to grow a lot even though traditionally they'd need more of it to have that reaction. Exactly. Or they're happy to grow in higher cell densities. So again, the total media you would need is less. There are some bioprocessing questions. So could you find ways to efficiently recycle cell culture media so that you're removing waste products, but still able to have the value of some of the expensive components in the solution? And yeah, obviously there are ways in which you might just reduce the cost of cell culture media directly. So could you look to the plant kingdom and find things like hydrolysates? So taking things like chickpeas, processing those chickpeas into their constituent parts and using those parts as functional equivalents of the very expensive components in cell culture media. So there's lots of really cool research happening in there. We actually, last year in GFI Europe, we partnered with an organization called EIT Food, where we ran an innovation challenge to basically try and solve this problem. And four projects were funded off the back of that. And they were all using completely different and very cool approaches to trying to solve this problem. And yeah, that was really exciting. It's that kind of innovation that we're hoping to see. Super cool. What are the most expensive parts of cell media? So there's a few different proteins. One of them is albumin. It has various different functions. One thing that albumin does is it binds other proteins in solution. So it's just important for essentially, it has a bunch of different functions in cell culture media, not just interacting with the cells directly, but actually kind of supporting other proteins in the cell culture media. 
And then there's a couple of what we call growth factors. So TGF beta and, and other proteins. So transferrin is another protein, um, which is okay. pretty expensive to produce. And that's just because like the ingredients to make those things and the process to make them from whatever the starting points are just happen to be really expensive right now. And we haven't figured out how to do it more cheaply. Yeah. And it's not it's not because by necessity they have to be or will always be expensive. It's just that the, the cost incentives have never existed because the market has always been people who are able to pay lots of money per liter and don't use very much of it. Um, so it's a question of changing the kind of economic incentives as well. Cool. Okay. So really expensive right now, but no reason to think it has to stay that way. We just need people figuring out how to make them more cheaply. Yes, exactly. 300 times more cheaply. Are there any other challenges with cultivated meat that we still need to work through? Yeah. So in addition to the various technical challenges I mentioned, there is also the the economic questions around scaling up. So specifically, it just costs a lot of money to scale up a production process like this. And for a lot of the startup companies, they just don't have the kind of financing that they need. So one need is trying to find better ways to de-risk and support providing the financial resources for these companies to scale up. So that can facilitate them actually getting access to the capital equipment, the infrastructure that they need at larger scales. Yeah, yeah. How is that going? I feel like there was loads of interest in cultivated meat. And I imagine that came with more capital investment. That just needs to be much more. In like 2022, there started to be more companies moving towards the demonstration scale. So they were starting to kind of generate things like market samples, um, producing cultivated meat in the thousands of metric tons kind of scale. But obviously, the, the final goal is to get to the industrial scale and be producing ideally millions of metric tons per year. More companies are getting closer to that stage, um, but we're certainly not there operating at full industrial scale. Cool. So those are some of the challenges. Have there, have there been any big wins? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the major wins from the last year really is the, the regulatory approval for those two companies in the US. Yeah, of course. And what's the, what's the story there? I guess like I had the, I saw that in the news basically and was like, that seems, that seems great. But I didn't have a huge sense of how big of a barrier it was, how kind of, or how big of a hurdle, like, was it, was it always going to be a very hard thing? How, how did it happen? How huge does it feel? It feels really big. One of the biggest bottlenecks for alternative proteins being accessible is passing through regulatory approval. And it's, it's just never quick. And the regulatory framework in different jurisdictions can genuinely influence how much innovation happens in a space. For example, in Europe, despite the fact that Europe has been the home of much of the kind of most exciting innovation in alternative proteins and certainly has the scientific potential if you look at our universities and things, a lot of companies starting in Europe, some of them are looking abroad to bring their products to market because it's just going to be so much slower for the, the regulatory approval to happen in Europe. So I think it brings a lot of signaling power. I think it signals to other countries that this is a real thing. And I think it signals to industry and investors that regulation is not going to be a massive bottleneck, at least in Singapore and the US. So it incentivizes more activity. If you make this 
it'll it'll be possible to sell it to pretty big markets. Yeah, exactly. Great. So yeah, it sounds like we've been making kind of steady progress. The first cultivated meat served costed what was it? Three hundred and thirty thousand euros. Uh, dollars. Yeah, dollars. Okay, okay. And I. I'm trying to remember what the last figure I would have heard, but I basically can't. It felt like it was in the like tens of thousands of dollars for a long time. Where are we now? Yeah, so consumers have been able to buy cultivated meat in Singapore. Um, and for those that have been, it's been around $20 per serving. It is definitely worth me caveating that that good meat is selling them at a substantial loss due to (laughs) limited production volumes and high costs. I can speak to the kind of with the techno-economic assessment that I mentioned from CE Delft, that did identify that if there were the right public investment going into the sector and solving some of those technical challenges around reducing media costs, things like that, it showed that it could be possible to bring cultivated meat production costs down to about €4.68 per kilo by the year wow. 2030. But Oh, that's amazing. It, yeah, it, it, it shows that there is a pathway to get there, but it is contingent on this big if of public investment. If you look at like where solar panels were in the 1990s, it exists and for the sector more generally, they were available for kind of very eco-conscious customers who are willing to pay a premium. But until there is just significant public investment going down into scaling up and solving some of those technical challenges, you won't be able to have something which is genuinely accessible to most consumers and therefore making it a real displacement of the actual market. Right. Okay. So it sounds like like obviously there are science challenges to solve, but it almost sounds like the main challenge here is on the policy side. It's like getting governments to believe that it's worth their public investment to get the science needed done to make cultivated meat possible at scale. And like, it's not that the questions are are impossible or overly difficult. It's just like, we've got to do the research and research costs money. And once we do it, with that money, we'll have cultivated meat at four euros a kilo, which which just sounds, yeah, incredible. Yeah, I, I, I think that right. Right now we have a roadmap for what making progress would look like and what addressing the current uncertainty would look like. So we know enough to know that it is absolutely worth pursuing and to know the scale of investment that needs to go in to pursue it. And we know enough to know that it's not a write-off entirely as a technology But yeah, there is just a lot of uncertainty as to how to get there and how to get that support from governments to get the sector there. Yeah. How much funding do governments need to commit in order to, yeah, to get that research done? So one report from the Rockefeller Foundation and BCG estimated that every single year, Mm. alternative proteins have an unmet funding need of around $40 billion. Okay. Yep, that's big. It sounds like both a lot, but also given the environmental benefits would probably be well worth meeting. I think if you look at R&D budgets for companies, Mm -hmm. $40 at a global scale is actually a drop in the water compared to what is spent on other technologies. Got it. Okay. So we need people on the policy side convincing governments that that is a commitment they should be making. 
Yes. And I should say, crucially, like there needs to be much more research funding going into the space. But there is also a very important role of scientists in continuing to to kind of flesh out and detail that roadmap for what the highest priority research areas and most promising avenues are to be going down. So we certainly need just far more scientists moving into that space as well. But that is a function of research funding and scientists don't do research if there isn't funding to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. How are things looking on the consumer acceptance front? I imagine for many people, cultivated meat in particular seems just kind of weird and sci-fi-y. Yeah, so there are different ways that you can come at this question. Because until very recently, cultivated meat, you weren't able to test this in practice by seeing what consumers actually did. Much of the way that people answered this question was doing surveys and seeing, asking people, how willing would you be to try cultivated meat? How much would you want to eat it? So Mm -hmm. one study showed that 80% of UK and US consumers are open to eating cultivated meat. Another study found that 66% of participants would be willing to try cultivated meat, and that included Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese speakers. GFI Europe has done some of our own research, and that suggests that 33% to 65% of consumers in Western Europe are willing to buy it. And I guess there's a kind of other ways you can look at this question. If you look at Singapore, People have been queuing around the block and waking up at crazy times to be able to get on the app to go and buy cultivated meat. So where we have data as to whether they where they can, people really do want to. Obviously, that's slightly different from is everyone buying it when it's readily available in supermarkets? But sure. that's a nice signal. And I guess there is this wider point, which is that for the most part, people just aren't eating meat because of how it's made. For the most part, people are eating it really despite how it's being made. (laughs) And it just goes back to that kind of original framework of taste, price and convenience. Like those feel like the most important things to be actually influencing whether consumers do decide to go and eat something. Yeah, let's talk more about GFI Europe's work uh, and how it's helping with some of these challenges. So I guess broadly, what does GFI do in Europe? So GFI is an international non-profit organization. And what we do in Europe is similar to what we're doing in the rest of the world. For example, in GFI US, GFI Brazil, GFI Israel, etc. Essentially, we are working with scientists, businesses and policymakers to support that transition towards alternative proteins. So I can speak in much more detail about the science part of our work specifically, but essentially it's working with the major actors who are important for food systems transition and building the case for and making it easy for them to be involved in this, move into this space, support the development and scale up of alternative Mm -hmm. proteins. Cool, cool. Yeah. And then you're on the science and technology team. What is your team focusing on at the moment? What's your, I don't know, top priority? So if we go back to the major requirements in alternative proteins, so back to this framework of taste and price and accessibility, There are just really strong fundamental technical components to at least the first two of those. So improving tastes and reducing price. And as GFI Europe in our SciTech team, what that means in terms of what we're trying to do is to build a really strong, well-supported and well-coordinated research ecosystem. And specifically, we're especially interested in open access research. So 
not having research happening that's closed and kind of under IP, which might lead to a lot of duplication or potential kind of siloization. We really want to have this brought into the public and have lots of scientists working on this and and publishing on what they're doing. So that's the goal, is to have a really strong and well-functioning research ecosystem doing open access research. In terms of how to do that, there's a few different inputs that need to come into that. So you need people, you need funding, and you need to ensure that for those who are working on it, that they're actually working on the most important challenges and that they are collaborating effectively with each other. So that's the kind of grounding of the levers that we're trying to pull to support the research ecosystem. And then in terms of how we split that up into actual kind of roles or projects, it's essentially targeting growth. So getting more scientists into the space and also building up that educational pipeline. So is there a way to bring technical students? Do they have educational pathways? Are there courses and things that they can go and study to actually learn the science and targeting actual kind of well-established researchers to switch, to spend some of their time working on the major research challenges? That's the growth function. Funding is obviously somewhat upstream of everything. You can't do science unless it's funded. So a major priority of ours is just getting more research funding into the space and making sure that the funding that is available is being directed towards the most pressing research challenges. And then the final kind of bucket of activities in our SciTech work is supporting the research ecosystem. So making sure that scientists are collaborating with one another, that they're aware of each other are doing, that they're aware of the major research priorities, just making sure that there isn't a lot of redundancy and kind of waste in the system. That seems great. Yeah, I guess it's easy to imagine a bunch of scientists kind of like each chipping away at like important separate problems because that would be good. Um, But in practice, probably what's happening is like, 10 scientists heard that one particular like growth factor is really expensive and they're all trying to solve it in a way that's just very duplication-y and not, not efficient. And so you're like, they've got that covered. Work on something else. That seems great. And crucially, if something doesn't work, um, this is another reason that publishing research matters and that there are conferences and, and ways. Right. So other people aren't exactly trying the same experiments. Yeah. Not following the same dead ends. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Yeah. I guess here you'd like really, really, really want scientists to know that a certain thing is a dead end and that you shouldn't do it. Yeah, exactly. And then in terms of the question of what's a major priority, Going back to what the goal is, a strong and well-functioning research ecosystem, one major unit of science in universities is dedicated research centres. So not just a collection of labs or a collection of, of individuals, but a coordinated research effort at the level of a university or an institution who is really trying to solve a particular challenge in a super interdisciplinary way. So This question of research centres is something that we're increasingly interested in and trying to understand how we, as an outside actor, what are the dials that we can be tweaking to try and support the development of these kind of organic research centres growing to solve the major research challenges. Amazing. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you for doing that. That sounds really important. And I guess there must be a million things to work on. How do you decide which ones to focus on? So... One example is a project which last year a colleague in GFI 
undertook for a year. And this was called the Moore Project. And essentially, it was looking at, because Europe is obviously huge, (laughs) and there's a lot of work that we could be doing. And in relative terms, GFI Europe is very small relative to the scale of the continent of Europe. Yeah. How big is your team? At the moment, we're about 25 people. And there's loads to do. So yeah, prioritizing seems important. Yeah, so there was this project that a colleague of us undertook last year. And essentially, it was taking a bunch of European countries and collecting information about these countries, like what are their national R&D budgets? How many scientists do they have in the disciplines which are relevant for alternative proteins? How innovative do they tend to be? How much of that research tends to be quickly commercialized? Or is there a big gap between academic research and industry and not a huge amount of coordination. So it was tracking a bunch of different things, the political factors and various other contextual elements. And that essentially led to a prioritization of which countries to target for trying to mobilize additional research funding going into the space. But it was also really helpful for flagging which countries to prioritize for that community growth aspect of our SciTech work. Yeah, how so? Because Research funding might increase if a government sees it's within their other strategic priorities to support alternative proteins. But it's also a function of the scientists themselves. If there's enough scientists in a country working on X, that's a signal to the government that they should be funding X because they have scientists who can actually absorb that funding and do meaningful work with it. So it's it seemed like from that mapping project, There were a couple of countries in Europe where it was more of a priority to actually focus on bringing more scientists into the community because that was more the bottleneck for bringing research funding in than directly trying to target research funding itself. So that was one concrete example, which is really interesting. Cool. Yeah, that seems great. Are there any others? Another one that jumps to mind is there are different approaches you could take for that community growth work. So, you know, you could just go out there and cold email a bunch of academics who are in the right disciplines and say, have you considered working on this research challenge? Here's why you might be particularly well placed to do that. But as you can expect that you might get a pretty high attrition rate with that. Academics are very busy, etc. So one way in which we're trying to target moving scientists into the space is actually just partnering with big scientific platforms that have big audiences of the right kinds of scientists. So partnering with the big scientific journals like Nature Biotechnology or Cell or professional associations. So you'll have networks of researchers, these professional societies that are essentially just collections of scientists in a particular discipline like the European Plant Sciences Organization, partnering with people like them to essentially just get easy access to their audience, but obviously focusing on what plant scientists could contribute towards solving alt-protein R&D challenges. So That's been one thing we've been focusing on is working with these various different strategic partners as well. Has your team had any wins that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, there's there's a couple of things. I think we've built really strong relationships with certain research funders, which has been really helpful. So we can essentially provide a service to them by providing knowledge of the major research priorities. And so we've had some really good traction, for example, with UK research and innovation in the UK. And then another example I would say is this joint innovation challenge that we ran with EIT Food. So the brief was for scientists to 
essentially come up with new and innovative ways to bring down the cost of cell culture media. We partnered with EIT Food and four projects were funded off the back of that. Those projects have now had a few months to actually get underway and start doing things. And they've had some really good results off the back of it. And I'm quite optimistic that those projects will be able to pull in much more research funding now from other sources to actually continue that work and, and hopefully bring it to market for the cultivated meat sector to be using. Amazing. That just seems like such a cool idea. I love that. So we're getting a lot of external funding coming to the space, which which wouldn't otherwise have gone to the space. And something I would touch on there is if your goal is bringing more research funding to the space, you can have this kind of top down approach where you're directly working with and supporting research funders. But there's also this bottom up approach where if through, for example, this EIT food challenge that we did or through GFI's annual grant program, which is a recurring grant program, scientists are funded that it kind of creates this groundswell at at the bottom level where they are then much better placed and much more able to apply for follow-up funding from public sources in the future. And there was a really lovely example of this recently where Professor Marianne Ellis at the University of Bath, who had received some GFI funding in the past and also some funding from other organisations, I think New Harvest, for example, She applied with a bunch of other academics and with a bunch of other companies in the UK. They built this large-scale consortium and applied for a big grant from one of the UK government's funding agencies and were successful in receiving this grant. And that was £12 million from an agency that hadn't really funded anything in alternative proteins before, but she was well-placed to apply for them because she's a chemical engineer. They fund that kind of science. She knew how to get what a good proposal would look like to be submitted to an agency like that. So that was just a really nice example of the importance of having complementary approaches of kind of top down, but also bottom up and supporting the research community to do their own work to bring more funding into the space. Cool, cool. So so GFI Europe's role was kind of providing enough initial funding that she was able to do enough work to then have a good proposal to submit that was for a much bigger amount? Yes. I should say that her funding came from our grant program, which is led by the US team. And, and she had pulled in, this wasn't exclusive GFI funding. Marianne had been funded from other people as well, but funding researchers who wouldn't otherwise be able to do the research which is often true in a new research field, is a really good way to build up that momentum such that it can then be self-perpetuating in the future. So I guess it sounds like a huge part of your work involves field building, which I guess makes you in a really good position to speak to what kinds of careers can contribute kind of the most to advancing alternative proteins. What kinds of scientists do you need? And yeah, I guess what will their backgrounds look like? We've talked a little bit about some of the required skills, but yeah, what's, what's the full range? Yeah, so I think part of the reason it's such an exciting space is because it is just so interdisciplinary. You know, we have different kinds of science, plant-based, cultivated and fermentation, and a bunch of different scientific challenges within that. And then obviously this is food and you're making real products that you want people to buy and eat. So a bunch of different science areas, agricultural sciences, animal sciences, chemistry, computational biology, fermentation science. So I I won't kind of give an exhaustive list, but essentially if someone has a background in the natural sciences, they can almost certainly contribute to addressing some of the technical challenges in alternative proteins. And we do have a list on our website of what these technical challenges are. 
And we have a list of priority disciplines as well um, that we can definitely share. Oh, amazing. We'll link to that. And I imagine it might feel daunting to someone who's like, oh, great, my my discipline is like in that list, but I kind of work on this other thing. Can GFI Europe or or are there institutions that can help people transition from like a related but not directly relevant like field of expertise to like actually contributing to some of these yeah really important open questions? Yes, absolutely. So we have developed a bunch of different resources that can help people move into the space. So my main advice would be to go to gfieurope.org forward slash science because there's lots of things in there and I won't be able to talk through all of them. We have a, a resource guide for newcomers to the space, which essentially kind of overviews what the main challenges are and what the path forwards might look like. We have things like a jobs board, a talent database that people can add themselves to, we have online communities. So if you want to actually meet people and see who you should be talking with, and if you're already an established researcher, identify potential collaborators. We have a bunch of different mechanisms to support and facilitate that. And we also have a funding database as well. So if you already have an idea of a specific project, you could check out that to see what it would look like to actually get the resources required to fund it and, and do it. Amazing. And obviously we do have our grants program as well to fund scientists directly. Awesome. It sounds like there's loads of support then there. So that's really cool. Are there skills besides scientist-ish shaped things that you'd be excited to get involved in the work? I know it's not your area of expertise, but it does sound like there's a lot of policy work that needs to be done. People convincing governments to allocate public funds for this kind of thing. So I imagine something there. Anything else? Yeah. So a bunch of roles in the commercial space. So if you're at all entrepreneurial or you're interested in working in a kind of VC, for example, there's a bunch of different opportunities to get involved to support alternative proteins, teaching, education, helping to build that that pipeline of scientists who can move into the space. Science comms and science communication is obviously going to be really, really important for this sector. Sure. Policy roles you, you've walked through other non-profit roles. There are, there are bodies like GFI and others who are doing a bunch of different work to try and support the sector. So there are a range of different roles that could be as part of that. And there are lots of people in this space who don't have a technical background and are contributing a lot to the sector. Social sciences as well. Sounds like a little bit of everything, which makes sense because this field is huge and ambitious and trying to change a huge part of the way the world works. But it sounds like maybe the key thing here is like, we'll link to this jobs board and some of these lists. And it sounds like there are going to be lots of places where people can slot in. So that's very cool. Yeah. How often is is GFI Europe hiring and maybe your team in particular? Yeah. So we often have open roles in GFI Europe. My best advice would be to just go to our website to check out whatever we have available at that particular point in time, because it obviously can can change quite quickly. But yeah, do check it out because we often are hiring. And if not, you can go to the jobs board to see a bunch of other roles that are also live in the sector right now. Cool. And if people don't have skills that end up seeming particularly relevant to alternative proteins, is there another way they can help? Yeah, absolutely. GFI Europe is entirely funded by philanthropy. So it is worth stating that everything that we do is only made possible by donors. So if you're looking to support the sector through ways other than your time or your career, then that could be a really promising option for you. Okay, well, that actually is all of the time we have for today. But I did want to ask you one final question. 
What What's the best part of your job? That's a hard one to answer. From my perspective, it feels like the obvious thing that I can't not say is that it's having the opportunity to work on something which you care really deeply about and which genuinely is the most efficient way to address some of the biggest challenges we have right now. So that's just deeply fulfilling. But on the day-to-day, it's the content of the work itself. So really varied projects, really exciting. You know, if you're someone like me who's interested in science and how science works and how you can drive innovation, this is the most fascinating use case to look at that in real time. And my colleagues are just amazing. I really, really enjoy working with the people I get to at GFI. Everyone's incredibly warm and kind, but also just really talented and really good at what they do, which is awesome. Yeah, I imagine it's a really lovely field to work in. It's a bunch of people motivated by pressing problems and and really interested in kind of nerdy, sciencey things that it sounds like you can share with them. It also just sounds like I don't know. I get the impression that lots of kind of applied science fields can can end up seeming kind of mundane or boring. But a lot of these questions just sound actually pretty fascinating and really varied and kind of cover loads of different kind of subfields of these natural sciences. And so it sounds like actually if you're a scientist, like it's just a pretty pretty awesome thing to work on intellectually. So you don't have to like sacrifice getting to work on something interesting in, in order to work on something meaningful. Yeah, I think I think you've put that exactly right. It's it's a very new field. It's so interdisciplinary. There's so much low hanging fruit conceptually in terms of what can be done. It's not like an incredibly well established research field where everyone is kind of trying to solve the same set of questions and it's a really crowded space and you're probably hitting pretty diminishing returns in terms of what a certain amount of time or resource can do. It's just this explosion of activity and it has a lot of creativity that that is needed to, to solve these challenges well. So if you are at all technically minded and excited about interesting scientific questions, I genuinely... As opposed to those people who are really excited about boring ones. <laughs> yeah, I probably shouldn't... Um... <laughs> Well, what I will say is lots of research fields have gotten to a point, um, and I think this is changing now, but I think over the last few decades, it has been the case that some research fields have developed to a point where people are working on one very specific problem. It'll be their pet protein that they dedicate their entire career to, say, or something like that. And I think that kind of thinking isn't really going to cut it in alternative proteins you have to be collaborating with so many people and thinking about the bigger picture and yeah 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 that makes sense cool so it's very cool space to be in awesome i love that thank you so much for coming on the podcast Darren. thank you so much for having me this has been a really great conversation All right. If you enjoyed that episode, I recommend you check out some of our other episodes on factory farming. So we've got episode number 99, Leah Garcia's on turning adversaries into allies to change the chicken industry. Number 91, Lewis Bollard on big wins against factory farming and how they happened. Number 20, Bruce Friedrich makes the case that inventing outstanding meat replacements is the most effective way to help animals. And episode eight, Lewis Bollard on ending factory farming as soon as possible. 
Okay. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell with mastering and technical editing by Dominic Armstrong and Mila McGuire. Additional content editing by myself and Katie Moore, who also puts together full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more. Those are available on our site. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. Hold up. 